The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week we're talking about fear, how it works, what it does to us, and why we sometimes seek it out. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Margie Kerr. She has a PhD in sociology from the University of Pittsburgh, where she is the co-investigator on the country's first-of-its-kind study measuring fear in the real world, collecting data on how the brain and body respond in real-life threatening situations. She's also the author of the new book, Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. Margie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into the book, uh, just to provide people with some context of perhaps why you got into writing about fear, you are a haunted house, house enthusiast, correct? Yes, yes. And not I just am. any haunted house. Um, I did a couple of volunteer years at a respected Halloween haunt uh, in my hometown, but you work, uh, you actually work on a haunt and you work with a group that's a bit more hardcore. So can you maybe talk about Scarehouse and how you got sure. involved in that? Yeah, I found Scarehouse in 2008. Uh, I was working on my dissertation and I was also working at the Veterans Hospital in research. And so I had spent, I don't know, probably 16 hour days every day just working at a computer at my desk. And I was desperately seeking something to just get me out of that kind of, you know, cubicle syndrome. And, um, so I, it was September. I did a quick search for, haunted houses because I knew that was something that would make me feel good. And um, I found scare house and I went through and it was unlike any haunted house I had been through before. Um, it had Hollywood quality sets and designs and original characters. And it was not too gory. It was just the right balance of creepy and scary and fun. And um, when I was finished and I, I came out, I was just so I just felt so good. And I had been talking to somebody outside that I came to find out was the owner. Um, and I said, you know, I would love to work here. I just want to be here all the time. And so I ended up analyzing their customer response data. They had years of data from their customers about what they find scary. And they'd never really had anyone look at it um, in depth, especially the open-ended questions. Uh, so I started doing that for them. And then just continued to get more and more involved and, um, you know, started helping with sharing the science of, uh, of what's scary with the designers. And they would then take that and create, you know, awesome characters and scares. So it's been a, um, something I never would have expected or could have, you know, put down on my goals and aspirations as a graduate student to work in a haunted house scaring people. But, um, it's, it's been great. So uh, you have a particular skill set uh, looking at data that probably the typical haunt scene doesn't generally have access to on their team. Um, what kinds of things did you look at in their data? Well, they they asked uh, people what they found scary, and uh, it seemed it's such a simple question, but you know, people really they like talking about what they find scary, and it does depend on the context. These uh, customers are answering this question. Uh, in the context of a haunted house asking them. So they get really descriptive and really go into, you know, things that scare them, but usually in a, in a fun way, you know, things that are the, the, the fun kind of fears. Um, so I would go through, uh, all of the, the answers and use the coding system, the qualitative coding, um, program and then tools, uh, to, come up with, you know, the different categories that people were focusing in on. So for example, I would have category, well, I would have a, a, you know, top code of monsters. And then within monsters, there were witches and zombies and serial killers and uh, ghosts. And then um, I would have uh, ways to die, <laughs> basically. So drowning, you know, stabbing, being shot. Uh, so it was, it's, Probably the most interesting code book, um, one of the most interesting <laughs> out there. <laughs> um, but it's great because now uh, I actually just finished this past year and now I've got, um, you know, about five years of this and I can really see the trends over time. And uh, um, it's just it's really fascinating. And I think it does get deeper than just looking at 
baseline descriptive statistics that ask how much they liked this particular attraction or that attraction. And, um, you know, I can really see what monsters they're, they're really are, are trending. It's quite interesting. When we hear about or read about fear research, it usually focuses on the negative experiences or effects of fear. But you also in the book came at it from the perspective of looking at why fear is a good thing, or at least why we seek it out. So why do we like to do things like haunted houses, even when we spend most of our time in them screaming our head off? Yeah, there's so many reasons. And I, coming from a sociology background, had primarily focused on the negative consequences of fear, too. Um, you know, looking at how it was used to manipulate people, how it was used to keep groups apart, and the root of things like discrimination and oppression. Uh, and so to, to start, you know, working with Scarehouse and recognize in myself that, oh, wait a minute, this is something that I actually enjoy. It really opened my eyes to this whole other side of fear where we, we can, you know, engage with it in a way that makes us feel good. And, uh, and what I found is that the benefits aren't just the natural high that everybody talks about. Everybody, you know, likes to say, oh, the thrill seekers and adrenaline junkies and, you know, people are just chasing that, that natural high. And that does play a part, uh, when we're afraid our body is, uh, releasing a whole cascade of chemicals that in the right context can be interpreted as enjoyable. Uh, especially when, you know, we're in a safe place, like, uh, watching a scary movie in our home or, uh, at a haunted house, yet the endorphins and the dopamine, the serotonin, oxytocin, all these things are being released, uh, during fight or flight. And when we know we're safe, we can kind of hijack that response and interpret it as, uh, enjoyable. But even beyond that, there's a real, sense of accomplishment that comes from facing our fears from, you know, activating that higher arousal response and making it through uh, to the other side, to the end. There's this feeling of, of success and it's a, a built in kind of evolutionary reward for having that right balance of uh, motivation to confront our fears and wits to know when we should uh, fight or, or flee. So even though we know that these environments are false, like haunted houses, even roller coasters, you know, we know that, uh, we're not really achieving anything. Uh, our body is, is feeling like we have. Um, so we're, we're, you know, coming away with a little bit more, uh, sense of confidence and, and resilience and, uh, and that it feels really good. It's, it's kind of like choosing to, um, you know, to have a, a self-esteem boost where you, you know that there's really very little risk of failure um, when you watch a scary movie or go through a haunted house. So uh, it can make us, make us feel um, better. And, and then I also saw that a lot of people like to do scary things because they're social experiences. They're things that we're doing with our friends. Uh, so if we have, you know, lots of good memories of going to haunted houses with our friends, then that's going to become something that we associate with um, bonding and community. Uh, and when we're scared, we also, um, we release oxytocin. So that, that does kind of promote the social bonding, pro-social behaviors. Uh, so it, it makes us feel closer to the people that we're with. Um, so there are all of these really good things that can come from being scared. But what I also learned, of course, is that it has everything to do with, with, um, with context and, uh, primarily control and, and choice. You know, when we're choosing to scare ourselves, the, um, outcome can be very easily positive. But, you know, when we don't have a choice, when we're legitimately afraid for our lives, uh, it's, um, you know, can become traumatic. It's an interesting experience, both going through choosing to to be afraid, especially as a social experience, where you get that mixture of kind of initial terror followed by usually kind of explosive laughter, and those things tend to go hand in hand. When uh, as someone who's worked in a haunted house, uh, when you see people go through these spaces, it's kind of interesting to watch these rapid swings from one side to the other. Yeah, I love that. And I, I've seen that so much too. You know, I, I used to just stand behind walls and watch people. And, um, what's happening is this right in front of you, you, you can see how the brain, how we're 
we're uh, moving from that space of screaming to laughing. Um, and it's our brain saying, oh, wait, no, we're safe, you know, so our body is already in that that high arousal space. And high arousal looks very similar across the, the board of, um, of experiences. So, you know, if we're excited or very happy or um, in a state of anxiety or anticipation or fear, um, you know, our body is, is doing lots of similar things. So our brain, our, our thinking brain can come in and say, oh, no, wait, we're safe. So this the thing that our body is doing can be interpreted as, as fun. So instead of screaming, let's turn this into a laugh. And, uh, it's just an amazing thing to watch. And it's so, it's so cool because for me, it reminds me that, you know, we can, um, we're, we're not completely at the will of, of our body. You know, we, we do have this complex interaction between, uh, parts of our brain that, you know, can allow us to harness in whatever we're experiencing and, and make it work for us. Is the enjoyment of fear a cultural specific thing? Are we just maybe weird in North America or do other cultures around the world enjoy being afraid as well? Well, the, we've, as a species, we've always found ways to scare ourselves and, um, and it seems like there's tons and tons of examples of, you know, scaring ourselves on purpose for some benefit. Um, but the degree and the intensity and the consumption of Scary material definitely varies by culture. Uh, in the U.S., we have a huge horror industry. Um, we've got movie horror movies that are doing well outside of the the Halloween season. Um, Krampus right now, I think, is did much better than expected at the box office, and it's you know it's Christmas time, uh, and that's a horror movie. Um, so in the U.S., we do have a high consumption of um, what I call symbolic violence. So scary movies, scary video games, um, haunted houses. But in places like Bogota, when I was in South America, uh, they have horror movies, they have scary things, but the consumption and the popularity is is not anywhere near what it, it is in the U.S. Um, and then in Japan, they also have very high uh, consumption of uh, scary things. So um, what I, I think is happening is that, you know, it, it's going to depend on what uh, what people's, you know, everyday reality is, is like. In Bogota, everyone that I talked to, um, said, well, you know, we don't have any desire to go out and, uh, and scare ourselves because this is, you know, it's, it's often an everyday reality that we're dealing with, uh, you know, scary situations. Um, and in the U.S., for many people, and it, it varies by socioeconomic status and geography, but, there really aren't that many opportunities to um, to actually do something that is going to activate that that fight or flight response uh, and to sort of practice it. So what I am uh, thinking in the U.S. is a lot of people will go out and do these voluntary uh, scary things to get to know their own fight or flight response better, to understand fear better, to uh, have a sense of knowledge about themselves and how they react in scary situations because um, they may never have experienced one before. And, uh, you know, kids especially really do need opportunities to get scared and know they're going to be okay. Otherwise, they'll get to their 20s and, you know, something scary will happen and they'll fall apart because, you know, they have no skills to deal with it. Um, so it, it definitely is a culturally influenced phenomena. We definitely don't think that early exposure to being afraid is a good thing, but I can see how building the skill set to deal with it is definitely a good thing. Yeah, and it's so hard to talk about because every time I uh, I mention, oh, you've got to let kids, you know, be scared and um, uh, fall down and uh, and hurt themselves. It's it's such a fine line because I don't want it to sound like I'm saying, oh, you should, you know, go scare your kids or, um, but, but it's, it is a, um, a difference in, in perspective, um, that I learned when I was in Bogota talking to the political scientist, anthropologist, psychologist there that, you know, their kids are very much raised with this message of, you know, this is going to happen. You're, you're going to, uh, experience stress, you're going to experience fear. Um, you know, you'll probably be, you know, pickpocketed on the street. Um, but you'll be able to deal with it. You'll be okay. Uh, and in the States, 
a lot of our messaging is uh, of avoidance, you know, don't do this, don't go there. I, w- I want to protect you. And, and um, it, it's almost like we're saying that you never have to experience, you know, fear or pain and everybody will. Um, <laughs> so, so we should, you know, I, well, I think, you know, raise our kids with this awareness that you know, bad things are going to happen. Scary things are going to happen. Um, but you know, you will be able to deal with it. You will be able to, um, to process. And of course, you know, also allowing for the fact that trauma does happen and that whatever their feelings are, are, are fine. Um, but it's just that message that, you know, this is going to happen and you're going to be okay. You are tuned in to Science for the People. Today, we're learning about the science of fear with sociologist and author Margie Kerr. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. Um, Before we go any farther, what what is the scientific definition of fear? I mean, what is it exactly? Well, it varies depending on what discipline is talking about it. And uh, it's it's a point of, of frustration for a lot of researchers because depending on what research you're looking at, the definition is going to be one that's more of um, kind of a social construction. Fear is, uh, you know, something that is built in time and place that we perceive as negative. Whereas if you're talking to, a, you know, a, a neuroscientist, they're probably going to say, well, it's when, you know, the body is in this state and the brain is doing this thing. And so the definition that I go with, and that's really, I think, coming forward as the most, um, widely accepted and used is uh defining fear as as basically the 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 threat response so what's happening in the body when the body is moved into that fight or flight um so that can be um defined by you know physical systems that what the um what the body is doing and what chemicals are related to it and then there is the emotion of fear, and that's the cognitive processing that's happening. So that's when we uh, evaluate something as being negative, as being um, uh, scary. So dividing the, the emotional response from what the body is doing allows researchers to focus in on uh, what they're talking about, because um, the acute threat response uh, looks different than, you know, chronic fear or anxiety. And in fact, the, um, the NIMH adopted this research document that, um, basically outlines all of the different emotional states and what the target systems are in the body, what surveys should be used, um, so that everybody's kind of on the same page. So if you're talking about acute threat uh, or fear, these are the, the genes that you can study. These are the, um, systems that you want to look at. These are the surveys that you can give. Uh, and that way everybody is, is on the same page. Uh, and it's been really helpful because it can get very messy. Um, because like pain, you know, if you say, well, fear is anything you say, uh, scares you, it, it's not very helpful. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so now there's multiple definitions, but at least we have a system of ta- no, making sure we're talking about the same thing. I'm curious. We often talked about talk about being afraid and also being creeped out. Is there a scientific differentiation between the two? I mean, I know there's a lot of overlap, but is there a scientific definition of what creepy is? I think the closest the scientific definition of creepy, uh, I think the closest thing that would come to that would be the uncanny valley, the theories around what's happening in the disruption of our prediction systems. Uh, there's been some really interesting research uh, looking at people in fMRI while they view things like you know, androids and robots and uh, and what they're finding is that you know when we feel that creeped out feeling, it's basically our brain registering an error in our processing of our, our prediction of, of what a human is supposed to look like or what we ex- uh, difference between what we expect to see and what we're seeing. Um, so it's not a full fear response. It's more of a, um, a disruption in, in our, our prediction and uh, a kind of um, dissonance, a aesthetic dissonance when we expect to see a human, but yet something is telling us this thing isn't quite human. And that feels really creepy because uh, then, you know, we don't know what to expect. We don't know how to adjust our um, 
our own kind of um, actions and behaviors to either protect us or to continue to reach out. So what are some of the typical ways fear is researched in a lab setting? Um, how do we usually go about researching it? And how do we navigate the ethics versus good data gathering needs here? It's really, you know, I, I wasn't that familiar with a lot of the lab research on fear before I started working uh, with Scarehouse and really digging into these other perspectives on fear. And what's so interesting is that you know, that we have really strong ethical boundaries in place, um, through the various, uh, institutional review boards and the, the Belmont report and all of these things that have been passed for, uh, safety of, of participants. But there's still a lot of things that fear researchers do in the lab that are, are very scary. For example, uh, when they're studying things like extinction or, or fear extinction and how long it takes to, um, you know, help somebody overcome a fear. Uh, they'll do things like show, uh, really violent movies, really, um, you know, uh, images that are very aggressive of interpersonal violence of, um, you know, very scary images. And, uh, when I started finding out about that, I was, I was actually very surprised because, you know, in the haunted house world and the entertaining side of fear, Everything is based on choice. You know, somebody is choosing to experience these things. So um, it's a, a very conscious decision. Whereas when you go into the lab and you're told, okay, you're doing a fear study, you know, you may see some in- images or videos that are scary. You, you really, you might not have any idea of what you're about to see. And so, you know, there have been instances where participants come away and are having lots of uh, intrusive recall, you know, they're, they're seeing these images that they, in the, they're appearing in their mind when they don't want them to, and it can become, you know, really, uh, uh, frustrating. And, and so it's, but on, on the whole, you know, fear research in the lab is very safe because they can only go so far. You know, they may be able to show very, uh, graphic images, but in terms of, you know, getting someone to a true threat response, they usually have to depend on uh, things like startle. So whether it's startling somebody with a um, a flash of light or, or um, you know, a mild shock uh, to activate the um, the sympathetic nervous system, it's pretty you know restrained, and so that can that can be a problem in a lot of ways because we may be missing a lot of what's happening in the brain and body in truly terrifying situations, which is why the study I have with my colleague is so exciting um, because we're, we're capturing people in these real world settings and, uh, and seeing that it does look different than what we see in the lab. Um, especially when we're measuring things like skin conductance. So that's, you know, how, how much we're, we're sweating sort of it's, it's measuring the electrical conductance of our skin. When we measure heart rate, uh, we're seeing that they are going far beyond what is observed in the lab. So that's, that's very interesting. And a lot of studies also will measure EEG. So looking at how the brain is, is processing these different types of images or cognitive tasks and, uh, how that changes when, um, when you scare somebody, basically when you, you know, get their body into that high arousal space, how does that interrupt our, uh, our brain uh, processing and and seeing that you know our thinking brain, a lot of our executive functioning, uh, kind of goes offline to prioritize the messages uh, from our limbic system to make us you know capable of fighting or fleeing. Um, so there's just a, a whole the the toolkit for fear uh, testing is is vast. Um, so many different things that we can use now to measure people uh, at a physiological level. And um, some of the most exciting advances have been in making that technology mobile. Uh, so we don't have to stay in the lab anymore. Um, you know, we have uh, GSR or skin conductance that we can, you know, plug into a, a, a iPhone and uh, somebody can wear it around all day. That's great, you know, because then when you when you are putting that on someone going through a haunted house, you're going to get some really great data. But then there's there's lots of other ways to study fear too. Lots of different self report surveys uh, and questionnaires, uh, and then also gene testing. You know, ch- testing people um, 
while they're in a state of stress to see what their hormones are doing, um, to see what, uh, uh, their body is, is doing in that time. And, um, so the, the methods are, are really, really endless. So now, um, you're actually partnered and working with, I believe it's Greg Siegel from the program in cognitive effective neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh to study, uh, fear in the context of Scarehouse, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. Our, our protocol is very unique in that we're allowed to go essentially anywhere, uh, and measure people in, in the real world. Um, the, you know, main thing is that we can only recruit people who have already chosen to do something. Uh, and so the, for the past two years, we've been studying people at Scarehouse. Uh, and so our, our customers, the, the main limitation here is that these are people who want to be scared. And we know that there is, uh, there are differences between those who like scary things, uh, who are thrill seeking and those who aren't. But, um, our theory is if we can understand, you know, what's happening in their body and their brain and what they're saying, uh, that they like about this, maybe we can find, um, you know, new information that could be helpful to treat different affective disorders. Um, and, uh, the, the cool thing is, is that, uh, it's not just Scarehouse where we can measure people. We can go anywhere. So we're already planning to, um, you know, go and measure people at different types of thrilling and, and scary, uh, situations, whether it's bungee jumping or roller coasters or, um, even things like, uh, like yoga or, or therapy or, you know, things that are, are emotionally intense, uh, and capturing that data so that we can see, uh, if it does look different than, than what's in the lab and how we could use that to, to help people. Um, our, our idea is that, you know, for, for a segment of the population, efforts to, uh, treat affective disorders like anxiety and depression all focus on down regulation of emotions. So suppressing those feelings, um, and trying to, uh, even suppress the, the, physiological, uh, experience of them. And what we're studying is, well, what happens if instead of focusing on down regulation, you go in the other direction, you know, you provide people with a, a high arousal experience in a safe controlled environment. Um, what's going to happen then? Because, you know, we see that, that people report to feel better. And that's what we went into, uh, this study trying to answer is, okay, people are saying they feel better. Why? What's happening? And um, we're putting out our, our first article in the next month here based on last year's data that does show that there there are changes in the way people are processing information um, from before to after doing something scary. And those changes are associated with uh, with positive affect. So this idea that we can scare ourselves into feeling better is counterintuitive, but for people who say that they're very stressed, for people who say that they're very anxious, uh, this is serving as a kind of, um, of intervention. Uh, cause we ask people about how they feel beforehand and we ask them to state what kinds of emotions they're, they're feeling. So stressed or happy or anxious or bored or tired. And it's those who are, are anxious and stressed that are having the biggest improvement in mood. And, um, and then when we look at the, uh, the data from the EEG, we can see that they're, they're changing in how they're processing this different cognitive and emotional information. So, so basically, you know, it, scaring people, <laughs> at least people who want to be scared can be, uh, beneficial in more than just a, oh, it feels, it feels good way. It can, we're thinking, uh, help people who, may have really uh, lots of rumination, basically those whose um, executive functioning may kind of drive the drive the boat <laughs> uh, the majority <laughs> of the time. You can get scared and kind of give that part of your brain a break and, uh, and kind of hit the reset button um, so that when you come back, you're not thinking about, you know, oh, I've got to pay my bills. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You're just sort of more calm. I'm curious, is there any research on the cross-cultural fear experience or expression? Do we express or react to fear differently depending on what culture we grew up in? Yes, there's lots of really interesting research on that. Well, I, I shouldn't say lots. There's uh, limited uh, looking at the expressions of fear. And uh, the the 
most cited articles have looked at differences between you know Eastern cultures and, and Western cultures. Uh, there was a really good study that looked at uh, Russia, Japan, and the U.S. and uh, found that when we're in public, you know, when we are in a movie theater around people, uh, the expression of fear is um, more diminished, more restrained in uh, Russia and in Japan than in the U.S. Um, so we, you know, will hide or try to suppress our, our emotions more, uh, in, um, well, in Japan and, and Russia, whereas in the U S we tend to feel a little bit more free and just expressing everything. <laughs> so the systems may be the same, but the expressions do are modulated by the influence of culture. We'll be back with more science for the people right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about fear. With me is Margie Kerr, sociologist and author of the book Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. So switching gears a little bit, um, you talk in your book both about the experience of roller coasters and heights, and I do want to touch on both. Um, I admit I don't think I understand the allure of roller coasters at all, though you did make it sound cool enough that now I kind of want to try one. Yeah. Um, roller coasters, you know, they, they trigger so many different feelings in the body. And I think, though, that for me, my favorite is the anticipation that a roller coaster inspires because there's so many moments where um the 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 coaster is just you know slowly creeping up the the tracks and you just are waiting you know that that eventually you're going to just take off and that anticipation uh ironically can feel really good um we release a lot of dopamine when we're in a state of anticipation so uh that slow climb to the top you know our body is in that moment just flooding with dopamine and, and getting us into this prime state so that when it eventually does take off and go through the loops, it just, um, can feel, you know, amazing for some people. Um, but you know, we, there are differences in how those systems are working and some people enjoy it more than others. And, um, some people, if they have a very, um, if they have poor balance or poor, uh, um, kind of, um, sense of a, of their space, their body in, in space, um, they may not like it as much because the dizzy feeling is, uh, is too much. But, um, that feeling of just total, you know, in, in one sense, you're completely out of control. Um, but in the other sense, you're completely safe. So, you know, your body is just being thrown this way and that, but you are, you're not in any real danger. And, uh, if, you know, you let go and just lean into it, so to speak, uh, it can feel really good. See, this is my question. When it comes to roller coasters, is it really fear we're experiencing or anticipation? And where do those two mix? I sort of think about this in my head as if you're a seasoned roller coaster veteran, would the experience be different for you than if it's your first ride ever? Yeah, the because the, uh, the fear comes in when when you are actually really you don't think that you can do it. So, you know, when you're looking around in, in line and you see the kids who are hesitating, going back and forth, just not sure they can do it. Oh, it looks so high. Um, and, uh, and they're truly afraid. Um, but for people like me, you know, there's, there's really no fear there. It's all fun. It's all, uh, just that, that high arousal, uh, activation. And I'm not interpreting it as, um, you know, truly scary, just, um, just my body kind of going into that high arousal state. But I will say that there are some thrill rides where I do still get scared, where that part, that lizard part of your brain takes over and says, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. There's one ride um, called the Black Widow here in Pittsburgh that 
uh, it's not a roller coaster. It just takes you all the way upside down. So you're hanging, you know, for about three seconds upside down. And in that moment, you know, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, this is crazy. I'm going to fall. And it's much like what I felt like on the CN tower in Toronto. Um, so there still is that activation of that very primal part of your body that says, you know, you can't fly. Uh, if you fall right now, you're going to die. Um, so, uh, but for, for roller coasters, you know, if I'm, I'm getting on them feeling very little fear and, it, and it's all, uh, a lot of fun. Um, but it's a lot of the, um, uh, different sensations that people usually will say that they don't like. Uh, for example, I was at Hershey Park just on Sunday and, um, I had a friend who, who doesn't like that, uh, the stomach drop feeling. So some people don't like that gravitational force. Uh, some people don't like the, the back and forth. Um, so that's more of the vestibular system and uh, messing with our, our balance. So it can be just a difference in, you know, which systems, which sensations in your body you don't like. You mentioned the CN Tower, and I do want to talk about this because I, it's actually been on my bucket list for a long time to do the edge walk at the CN Tower. And this summer, this past summer, I actually got the chance to do it. Um, so reading that section of the book for me was, was really fun because the experience of doing the edge walk was still really fresh. Yeah. Um, and it was in many ways, I, I sympathized with you at various <laughs> points, both yeah. the fear, but also the pure exhilaration that came with kind of the mid to later part of the experience when you're kind of getting into a groove and and you've got some of the response under control and you really get that that punch of high yeah I literal high (laughs) right I was so surprised at my response on the CN Tower I really didn't think that I would respond the way that I did which I love, you know, I love that we, we still can't predict what we're going to experience in a, in a certain, um, you know, uh, context. I, I love that. Um, and so when I walked out and I had that response of just pure fear and just wanting to both just drop to my knees and run at the same time, uh, I was just, I was just shocked. I couldn't believe what my body was doing, um, because I'm not, a, I'm not traditionally afraid of heights and, uh, you know, I do crazy things all the time. And I thought I went up the CN Tower thinking, this is going to be no problem. This is just going to be fun. Uh, and to walk out and feel my body just take over like that was such a surprise. And then by the, yeah, about the middle of it, it was just pure bliss um, and feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I'm doing this. I feel like I'm um, just, you know, the king of the world <laughs> and up there, you really do feel like it. And for the rest of the day, you literally feel like you could do anything. <laughs> yeah. I, yes. I wish I could start every day by either jumping out of a plane <laughs> or going up there because it really, you do, you feel like you can do anything. Now, when I'm in a situation that is, is difficult or that I'm nervous about, usually if it's confronting, uh, you know, coworkers or colleagues or students or, you know, something where I am hesitant, I'll think, wait a minute, I leaned off of the edge of the CN Tower. I did that. I can definitely have a conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> it it's really stuck with me. Fear is such a complex thing. It can make us flee, it can make us fight, or it can literally make us freeze. I mean, how can this one thing make us respond in so many different and completely uncontrollable ways? Yeah, they're finding there's some really good research by Wendy DeAndra. She looks at blunted affect and she's suggesting that actually there's an additional response that we can have to fear. And that path that we choose, um, and it, choice is really, um, inaccurate, not really the right word there, but, um, whether we run, whether we fight, whether we, you know, freeze or whether we just shut down emotionally, uh, is going to have a lot to do with our, uh, development through childhood. And, you know, ways that we've learned are really effective at dealing with stress and ways that are uh, ineffective. So um, how we respond, which path we choose is going to largely be a result of whatever adaptations have happened during our, our development. Um, so if running in the past has worked really well, then, you know, you're going to continue running or if fighting has been the go to. Uh, and then in Deandra's work, she's showing that, you know, people, particularly with um, histories of abuse and trauma that this shutting down emotionally. So it's not that you're freezing and incapable of, 
of, of acting, but that you are essentially disconnecting your emotional uh, response is yet another way you can respond to fear so that you may still be cognitively aware, but you're not feeling anything. Um, and uh, so that's really interesting too, just seeing that, you know, a lot of it is um, these adaptations that are to try and help us deal with fear, but in the long term can be very problematic, especially with blunted affect, because then, you know, as an adult, you're working towards trying to feel again, uh, rather than shutting down. We have talked a lot about the more lighthearted side of fear, but it's important to talk about the fear we don't opt into experience and how it affects us because it, it does affect us in a very different way. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the consequences of fear and trauma are, are tremendous. And, you know, we, there's a lot of research. Most of the research that I use in my book is all from research looking at things like PTSD and looking at how people, um, you know, deal with stress and trauma. And, um, it's, you know, learning those systems that for me has been, you know, so empowering to then turn around and say, okay, we don't need to make fear the enemy. Um, we can, you know, appreciate how our body has, uh, tried to adapt to dealing with fear. So in looking at people, um, with PTSD, with blunted affect, um, you know, a lot of my research now is, is focused on trying to help uh, help them kind of reclaim their emotional response to fear uh, so that it can be something that is not so scary. Um, you know, and, and even, you know, things like phobias, you know, social anxiety disorder is, uh, is huge. People uh, really struggle with, um, you know, feeling confident in, in social situations. And uh, what I find really exciting is that you know, we can, you know, potentially use these chosen scary situations to help people, um, come back in, uh, into a relationship with their threat response, uh, so that the phobias, the, the things that they're afraid of aren't so scary anymore. Um, and in fact, what's really interesting, my best friend is a, a psychologist and she, uh, she works a lot in mindfulness and in, uh, yoga studies and, and studying how, um, being mindful, being aware, uh, can be very effective for PTSD. And so she's done studies with soldiers and yoga and, um, a lot of, uh, kind of exercises that focus on, you know, coming into a relationship with your body in a state of, um, meditation or, or, or yoga. And we joke because, you know, I'm sitting here scaring people into doing the same thing. And she's, you know, doing it from the other side, going through, you know, yoga and meditation. But the end goal of this awareness of what the body is doing is the same. Um, and getting, you know, to the point that you're comfortable in uh, all of these different uh, emotional states. There's definitely, I think, no better representation of a fear we don't choose than um, the sections in your book where you're at the Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site, and you both go through that, experiencing the ruin and experiencing the place kind of as a as an observer and as a, a historical tourist, so to speak, mm-hmm. but also talking about the real experience of people who were in those facilities without a choice and who that was their daily life and that was what their experiences were. Um, so why are institutional spaces like this, uh, prisons, asylums, even to some extent old schools, uh, why are they often really good at both pushing our fear buttons and what happened in those places that, that makes it really good at that? Yeah, these are... Uh, what Goffman calls the total institutions, these places where we are largely stripped of our identity and we are instead, you know, forced into almost a, a non-human type of, of category. And the dehumanization that happens, uh, in these total institutions is, is terrifying because, you know, you do, um, your, your sense of self is, is taken away from you. Um, and, it's not just for the people who are, you know, there involuntarily, but even for the employees and the people who work there, uh, it's the, the space itself creates this dynamic where, you know, people stop being individuals and start turning into just numbers. And that can lead to the abuses that we see because, you know, the first step in oppression and abuse is dehumanization. And, um, 
and that uh, you know led to the greatest atrocities throughout uh, throughout history. Um, and then you know being uh, involuntarily confined, uh, especially in isolation, you know we our, our brain really can only handle so much. Um, you know even with with all the conditioning and the uh, practice that is out there, at some point you know if you are put into a situation like solitary confinement, especially if it's for uh, days and days and days without any interaction, without any um, stimulation in terms of, you know, going outside or, or even um, being able to, uh, to read or anything, you, you will break and, and that's devastating. Um, and it really is a, you know, it's a, it's a form of torture. And it, when we go to total institutions, we see this, this, representation of lack of humanity, lack of compassion, and, and it forces us to think, oh my gosh, how could we do this to, to each other? And how, how, you know, this is just a, a, a really scary thing to think about, to think about losing all sense of control um, and, uh, and being exposed to just such horrendous conditions. So that really, I think, is behind why a lot of people will, you know, go and tour these places because it's, you know, getting us close to this fear of loss of control, this fear of confinement, uh, without actually experiencing it. But there, there's also the reality that, especially for prisons and, um, you know, that we want to get close to, uh, to that fear to see and remind ourselves that we are not, uh, worthy or, or deserving of being locked up. You know, only, you know, monsters are locked away. Uh, and we are not, so we must not be a monster. So it's that sort of re- reaffirmation of who you are by seeing who you are not. Um, but of course, we know that the prison system is is very, very flawed. And uh, it's not uh, just monsters who are locked behind prisons. But, you know, it's just it's that combined with the loss of control. It's a very uh, scary place. And um, when we tour them, I think we're reminded of uh, of our own freedom, um, but also that we want to be good people. You know, we want to be compassionate and understanding. We don't want to hurt each other. Um, so it's it's kind of like by going to a place where that happened, we're reminded um, that we don't want that. You found the experience of being in the solitary confinement space at the Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site really affecting, and um, you were able to leave at any moment. So. How does solitary confinement affect us, and and what research have we done or is still being done on the impact of isolation? Uh, there's a long history of research on uh, sensory deprivation, and uh, and what's amazing is that uh, it's showing that it doesn't even have to be very long. Um, that some people will start to uh, do things like hallucinate and essentially, you know, go into a panic attack even within an hour, two hours of complete deprivation. Uh, now, there's different extremes of deprivation. You can put people in the, uh, the rooms that are completely soundproof and, uh, and lightproof, or you can put people essentially in a, a body cast where they can't even feel anything. That's generally where the um, you know, decomposition happens the quickest. Uh, and what is behind that is that our brain... Uh, is built to run, is built to process information. Uh, that's what it's constantly doing. That's, you know, why we dream where our brain is, is always moving like a, a mouse on a, on a spinning wheel. It's always moving. And when you take away any stimulation, any external stimulation, it's going to look for things to process. Uh, and it's going, if it can't find them, it's going to make them up. So that's why people in confinement in uh, deprivation uh, scenarios will start hallucinating either auditory or even visual start seeing things because, you know, here's the, this brain running, you know, a thousand miles an hour with nothing to process. So it will, it will create something. And, and that's, uh, that's terrifying because then you don't know what's real and you can't handle it. But the, the confinement situations that are more common in, in prisons and mental institutions where, you know, you're just put in a cell and that's a different, that's going to evoke, you know, some fears that are, that come from just too much, um, turning inward and no social interaction. You know, we really, we know ourselves and in many ways, we even know what we're feeling by communicating with others. And when that's taken away, 
you start really second guessing everything uh, that you feel and everything that you think and just getting into a lot of heavy rumination cycles. Uh, when I was at Eastern State, I went to the panel, uh, which brought back former prisoners and guards to talk about their experiences. And the, the prisoners, you know, all talked about how, you know, they were stuck. You know, when you're in a cell by yourself, you, you have nothing to do but think about, think about your past. And they would get stuck in these rumination cycles going over, you know, either the things that they have done wrong, what got them in that situation. Uh, and that kind of negative rumination is just, I mean, it, it really does break a person. Uh, and it is the opposite of, you know, rehabilitation. It's, you know, really breaking people down. You know, confinement is a truly scary thing. But what's interesting too is that that same situation, sensory deprivation, some people will seek that out as a form of relaxation. So the float tanks have become very popular. Uh, and the difference there, of course, is choice. You know, you're entering this relaxation deprivation tank for, you know, 20 minutes. Um, so while you're in there, you're using it as an opportunity to, to do whatever you want, whether it's, you know, stop thinking or, or think about something. Um, but it's a chosen deprivation. Uh, and as soon as that choice is taken away, it becomes panic. And just ask anybody who has, um, been stuck in one and it just is a flip of a switch. All of a sudden you tell someone you can't get out and it changes panic. everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is solitary confinement still used anywhere in the U.S.? It is. And this is a, you know, I originally had pages and pages on the politics of prison systems and confinement. And, uh, you know, my editor rightly said, this is a different book. And, and But solitary confinement is still used. And what is very difficult is that there's no national data set that gives us an idea of how many people are in confinement. So prisoners or prisons will use confinement cells many times under the, the guise of saying this is for their protection or, you know, to protect them from other people. But it, it's still, uh, it's still being used. And, you know, we're still seeing the negative consequences of that. In Pennsylvania, it was just in 2014 that they outlawed putting prisoners with mental health conditions into solitary confinement. So there's still a long way to, to go. Once, if you've been in solitary confinement and come out, what are some of the lasting effects that come with being in solitary confinement for a period of time? A lot of it depends on how long you were inside and the extent of the confinement. Um, so there have been a few studies that have looked at this. And for, for those who are confined, especially at a young age, there are really big consequences to uh, their cognitive development. So um, kids who have been isolated, they show poor test scores for different types of intelligent testing, but also just aren't able to process emotions as well. So there's cognitive and emotional consequences. And then the older you are and the less time in confinement, the more diminished the, the long-term consequences. But it, it does affect us at a, at a cognitive level where we actually are changing the way we're processing information and for kids, that's that's huge. You know, if we think about kids who are in juvenile detention halls who may be um, put into confinement, you know, that could have very long lasting impact on their ability to to think and feel. So if we know that solitary confinement can have such a huge negative and lasting impact, what is the justification for using it? Well, in the beginning with uh, Eastern State Penitentiary, the idea was that through confinement, people would be able to turn inward and, you know, examine their own moral character and then repent. And so it was very much religious based and it was, you know, supposed to be a time of reflection and, and then you would come out, you know, knowing how you wanted to be a better person. But the reason the justification today is one that, uh, it's used for protection, either of, you know, an inmate or inmates around them and that it's just easier. I mean, it's just easier for places to put people into a room and close the door than to try and f find ways of, of everybody getting along in a, in a social situation. You know, we have all of this data showing that it's, it's not good for people, but yet it persists. I, I do believe because it's just, it's easier and, 
people, you know, maintain the idea that this is the only way to keep either the person themselves safe or the people around them safe. I have so many questions about this, but as your <laughs> editor said, that's an entirely different show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do want to end on uh, more of a positive note since we're all almost out of time. So I, uh, for the listeners at home, um, what in your experience as someone who seeks out fear, what, what has been maybe the best, uh, fear or most positive fear experience or even maybe the best haunted house that you've ever been to? The CN Tower still sticks with me as the, the best because I've never felt my body that physically afraid. And I think the fact that I was able to see it through for, you know, you're up there for like half an hour. So I think that that really has stuck with me as being, uh, an amazing experience. But the, the scariest haunted house was in Japan and uh, it was really tiny and there was just one actor. So it felt like a very personalized haunted house and it had uh, a really strong storyline. So I had to, um, you know, read this whole story about what I was about to go into and I had a, a task I had to do. I was going in to save people and or save, you know, just one um, child and and so I was completely immersed and I was in there by myself and there was just one actor who was chasing me through and it was just terrifying, um, but so much fun. So that was an interesting section to read in your book because it seemed like yeah. part of the reason it was it worked so well was because it kind of was counter to all of your previous experiences with haunted houses. I know. I and I was I was surprised too because usually, you know, it's the haunted houses where you know, you're with all your friends and there's lots of startles and, and that's really fun too. Um, but this was such a different type of, of haunted house experience. So I just was blown away to be in there by myself and, you know, just with one actor, just having one actor, I think made it scarier because that actor's only job was to follow me and scare me. <laughs> so. There was one actor and one visitor. <laughs> right. <laughs> So for people who are interested in making their own local haunt haunted houses better or who are interested in maybe starting up a, a haunted house in their local area, can you can you give them some pro tips on how to create a great scare house? I think that balancing the fun with fear is essential for people to have a good time. You know, if if your goal is to just scare people, you know, that's that that's not a lot of fun. At least I don't think, you know, I want people to leave feeling good. And so I think balancing it, making sure that people are coming away feeling good um, is, is key so that they're screaming and then laughing. And that means paying attention to things like the content in your haunted house, you know, is this content um, going to be uh, really triggering or offensive for people? Or is it going to, you know, just hit the right notes? And and so, yeah, I think that when it comes to creating a really good haunted house, uh, there's an appreciation for all emotions, not just fear. So I guess that's that would be my advice. Or maybe see if you can track down a, a good, scare-friendly sociologist who yeah. wants to dig into your data. <laughs> right. <laughs> Margie, we are sadly all out of time. But thank you so much for joining me today. It's a really interesting book. This has been great. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Margie Kerr, her book or research or her beloved scarehouse, we have all of those links ready and waiting for you in the show notes for this episode, which you can, of course, find at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, click the links to connect with us on Twitter and Facebook and to iTunes, where you can subscribe to the weekly podcast, rate the show and leave a review. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. 
The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Schell. 